You know, when we think about regrets, the regrets we have, and as kind of that video shows, you know, it's, it's amazing how often uh, the regrets that we have in life have to do with things that we choose not to do. The things we never get around to doing, uh, maybe because we didn't prioritize them, or because we were too afraid to take a chance. It's the inaction, it's the passivity that haunts us and makes us wonder, what if I'd only taken that risk? What would my life be like then? See, we're all wired a little differently. We all have a different tolerance for risk. Some of us are wired naturally where it's not a thing, but some of us, that's just no bueno. And that's what I'd love to do is if you haven't taken the risk assessment, I want to look at some of the results right now. And so I'm going to pull it up on my app here uh, and just kind of do a little informal survey of how risk tolerant we are in this. And so maybe you haven't yet, but if you would, I would love for you to vote on this. You bring out your phone. I'll read through these, make a vote, and then I'll refresh it. And we're going to see how we do where our communal risk tolerance is at. All right. So on a scale of one to five, with one being bubble wrap is my happy place and five being adrenaline junkie, I want you to rate where your risk tolerance is at. So one, bubble wrap is my safe place. That'd be the lowest on the scale. Number two, I will go to a new restaurant if I have to. And I'm just going to let you know that's what I do. That's me right there. <laughs> if we have to, I will go to a new restaurant. Three, I have found moderation and it looks good on me. Some of you know balance, and you are shining pillars of our society. Four, drinking milk five days past the expiration date is normal. You don't mind a little risk-taking with your breakfast cereal in the morning. That's all right. And five, uh, pure on adrenaline junkie, that's me. That's you. Go for it. So go ahead, submit your results. Give you a few more seconds here before I press submit, because then that's going to give me the results to kind of see where we're at. All right, here we go. So, you know what? I'm, this, that's pretty good here. I, if you can't, I think you should be able to see it too. If you vote, you'll get to see it too. No one, you know what? No one's just a bubble wrap person. Way to go. That's a healthy place to be at. Oh, one, oh, somebody, I'm sorry. We're here for you. We're here for you. You don't have to stand up right now, but we would hug you if you wanted to. Uh, I have uh, six people like me. I'll go to a new restaurant if I have to. You know, we just, we just have that, you know, that, that rotation, right, that you hit up and you keep going to. Most people are in the middle. Uh, you're right there. As we, 62% have found moderation. I'm so proud of you, but you're kind of liars in a little sense because <laughs> there's some things you will not do. And so you are risk averse somewhere and you are lying. So um, drinking milk past five days, that's my middle child. And uh, some adrenaline junkies. Who are you? Because you're not scared to say it, right? Yeah, you're Adrenaline Junkie Scott right up here. Got some Adrenaline Junkies, right? So you love the thrill. You love going for it. Ed, did you say you're an Adrenaline Junkie? Thinking about it. <laughs> he, he said, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I love that, man. I love that. Um, you know, again, I'm inherently, I'm not a risk taker. That's, that's just, my, my biggest risk this week that I took was cutting a loaf of bread and almost cut my finger off. Like, 
that's not a joke. I can show you the hamburger that this was. If you want to come up, I've got pictures on my phone. I can't even show my wife. She won't look at them. But that's, that's where I'm at in, in risk taking, where I got enough risk at my home, just trying to cut dinner up um, on a normal day. Um, but isn't it crazy to see the difference? Some, it, like we share a lot of DNA as a humanity. Like as a human race, there's a lot of similarities, we, but, but, but there's so many differences, not just external. But, but intrinsic, internal. And so risk-taking, how we're wired, we can be so different. Even though we share so much common DNA and chromosomes and, and, and where we live. I think about it even in my kids that I see. I've got two kids, you know, or three kids. Sorry, Isla. <laughs> you know that last one. That last one gets left out sometimes. I got three kids. It's, I know. Did you bring her? Did you get her? <laughs> and, and, and the middle one is the one that stands out. He's like, he's like my wife. They're inherently risk takers. And my, my other two, uh, my, my bookends, my oldest and my youngest, they're a lot like me. They're planners. They imagine their whole imaginary worlds and they get it all laid out, you know, and they don't want to take the risk. And so I, lo- I look at the two boys, the brothers, right? And they're like so different. They share so much common DNA, yet they're wired so differently. And that's just crazy to me. But no matter how we are wired in this world, taking risks is absolutely necessary. It is a necessary and inherent part of the human existence, the human experiment, to have to take risks. And so our tolerance for taking risks affects our abilities to chase and grab a hold of the dreams that we desperately long for. Do you have a dream? Do you have a, a vision that would satisfy a longing in your heart, but you're afraid of taking the risk? You're afraid of what it might cost you. Here's what I wonder sometimes. What if we realize that the bigger pain in our experience, it, it's not going to come from the pain of the, the fear of failure, right? That's a confidence killer. The fear of failure, that's a pain. Self-doubt, how we think of ourselves, how we view ourselves, and just um, the inner junk that we have, <clears throat> that can cause pain, and that can keep us from acting in life. But what about the pain of not ever getting to see a dream come true? The biggest pain in my life would have been not asking Erin Nicole Graham, who's now my wife, out. Not asking her out 15 or 16 years ago. It all blurs after that, right? You get to a certain point. You're just like, it's been a while. But I I didn't want to ask her out. I was an insecure mess of a young adult. I projected, or at least tried to project confidence on the outside, but the only way I was able to project confidence on the outside was being an absolute mess on the inside, being anxious and nervous and thinking, overthinking things through so, so poorly and badly. And I can remember um, taking the risk of signing up for an internship as a college-age student here at Shoal Creek, and, and my wife happened, Erin, happened to sign up for that too. And the time we spent together, and, and I had affections for her. But I was scared. I was so scared to act. I was so scared 
to put those feelings out there. All I could do was look at myself and just see what was inside my internal world. And it just, what if I mess up? What if, it, what if we break up? What about that pain? What if she sees inside of me and doesn't like it? What about that pain? But no matter what that pain was, I couldn't help it. The affections for her just came out naturally and was observable to the people I was in the internship. Her affections naturally came out towards me, and who can blame her? And it's hard being this, clo this close to this guy and not have a magnetic attraction. It, it took Roy to get that in your notes, Roy. <laughs> Put that in your notes. Write that down. It took Roy, uh, who, who's the visionary pastor here at Shoal Creek, and it took him, who's leading the internship, to say, guys, we know you want a date. We know. We're just asking you not to do it for six more days. Because there was a rule um, in our internship of, you know, focus on the work, not on romantic relationships, you know. And, and so he's uh, just like, you could just go talk about it and put it on hold for six days. And he called us out. You just did. And I know you remember it. I know you remember it. <laughs> There's some other friends, you know, people I've been able to be friends with in this community around who remember it too. And it's what, it's what I needed. I didn't have the courage to do it. And thank the Lord, you know, that I was surrounded with a community of people who cared about me and loved on me and loved my future and were, were able to push me forward when I couldn't push myself forward. And then, and then just reflecting on that this week, what would have been different? Aaron and I celebrated 15 years of marriage on the 5th. 15 years of marriage. By the grace of God, like, 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 you know it too, right? When you've been married 15 years, like, how did we get here? My wife sent me a picture. Oh, and my son, my 12-year-old son, Everett, he had his 12-year-old birthday this past week, and she sent me a picture of, like, me holding my newborn in the hospital. I said, who is that man holding my son? Is that the real father? You know, because it just looks so different, you know? Like, you go back 15 years ago, and like, who is that? We were, and she said to me, she sent me that, you know, we were babies having babies, you know, like so young, so unknowledgeable, you know, but, but just willing to take some risks, you know, because we had dreams in life and we had a community of people willing to push us to take risks. That would have been the most painful thing. And, and I don't know that we think about risk like that. We think about what's in the near term. We think about what, the, 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 the nearest pain, the fear of the failure, the self-doubt. That feels like the real thing. That's going to be the thing that's painful. But it's on the other side. It's not getting to that dream. That's the real pain. And so we have to be willing to look inside, to look at the obstacles and say, what, what would it look like for me? However I am wired, whatever my personality is, Whoever God made me to be, what it would be like for me specifically to take life-changing, abounding risks in this world. And so that's what I want to ask us, because, you know, I, I would love for you to feel a clean slate right now. If you need me to absolve you, because you come from a Catholic background here, I do too, you're absolved. <laughs> All right? I want you to feel the clean slate of being able to just think about, you know what, I can't change my past regret but I could keep myself from experiencing future regret if I'm willing to ask myself a few questions. And so I want to ask a few questions today so that we can move forward together towards an abundant life. So the first question is, do you operate as if the spiritual world is real? You know, we all come to church on a Sunday, I did, you know, where we have church in our background and we might think about certain behaviors as being religious or spiritual, but I don't know if that actually affects how we operate in our day-to-day -day life. 
do we live as if there is not just a better life available to us, but a supernatural life? That there is an unseen world and a heavenly Father working within our seeable, knowable reality? Is there a great loving being who has us in his mind's eye working for our good in this world? I want to show a clip to you, but I want to set it up first. It's Josh Allen, the quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, in his post-game presser after last week's game. See, our country, our nation, probably people around the world too, were caught up in DeMar Hamlin and how a couple weeks ago on a televised, nationally televised public game, the safety for the Buffalo Bills, DeMar Hamlin, had a heart attack on the field and died. He died on the field for nine minutes. They had to do CPR on him on television. The Buffalo Bills and, and the Cincinnati Bengals showed a brotherhood. They surrounded him to block him from the camera angles. This, this young man died on the field, had to be resuscitated, and went to the hospital. And we were caught up in DeMar Hamlin's story over the next week. Was he going to wake up? What's his neurological function going to be? And finally, he did wake up, and it's just an absolute miracle, you know, that he's functioning and alive. And so uh, the first game back from DeMar Hamlin, you know, dying on the field well, was last weekend, and the Bills in their game and the opening kickoff was ran back for a touchdown. And the stadium went nuts, and it was crazy, and the announcers didn't know what to say because it was just so, so unexplained. Like, how can you write this story? Do you know how many touchdowns had been returned in the NFL season this past year? Out of 1,600 kickoffs, how many do you think were returned back for touchdowns? Four. You guys have been on Google too, haven't you? <laughs> You've been on good. Four. And that game, the same man, Neheim Hines, ran back two in the same game. And it just felt miraculous. And this is what Josh Allen had to say in his post-game presser about those plays in that game. Can you go ahead and play that for me, please? Victory today for the Bills. I can't remember a play that touched me like that, and I don't think in my life. So it's, it's probably number one. It, 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 was, it was just spiritual, and I just, I was going around, and I just, I mean, I was going around my team and saying, God's real, like, you can't, you can't draw that one up, write that one up any better, um, and I, I was just told by Kevin Curran, it's been three years and three months, <sighs> since the last kickoff return, so, it's pretty cool. Mm. I don't know if you caught that. It had been, for the Bills, it had been three years and three months since they had last returned a kickoff return. And Darmar Hamlin's number three, and he ran back two touchdowns. And what I love about that is what I think that young man, Josh Allen, is, is, is verbalizing is it's, it's not just about living a better life. It's about being connected to a supernatural life, a spiritual life. That man, that young man, has one of the best lives in the world. <laughs> You know, out of that seven, eight billion people that live on this earth, he makes, I don't know how many millions of dollars. He's fame, fortune, talented at what he's do, acclaimed success. And yet for him, he was brought to tears to that moment. 
There's a spiritual life, not just a better life. That's not what we're called to. We're not called to just a better life. We're called to a spiritual life. See, taking risks in this world that will bring us into an abundant, fully flourishing life is going to mean trusting that God is real. Just like what Josh told his teammates in that moment up and down the sidelines. God is real. And that he is operating in our world, fully capable of miraculous outcomes. So what we have to do then is we must learn to relocate our confidence from ourselves and into Jesus, the very source of all spiritual life. Our life has to come from him. Our confidence has to come from who he is and what he has done, not ourselves. And I believe Jesus verbalizes this very succinctly, very, very potently in John 15, 5. This is one of my life. I love this verse. This scripture right here, if we were to just dwell on it and read it and meditate on it and, and think about the implications of living out John 15, 5, it could make a huge difference in our ability to take risks. And I'm going to read it right now. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is one of the most intense conversations he has with those that are close to him. I mean, look at all the red. If you've got one of those Bibles that has a lot of red letters, it's in a really intense part of Jesus' life. And in John 15, 5, Jesus says, Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And what I like about that is, is, if, is I like to think about the opposite of that or the converse of that. If, if apart from Jesus, I can do nothing, but if I'm in him and my confidence comes from him and his resources, not my, me and my resources, but his supernatural resources, then I can do everything. See, what happens, I think, in this whole risk-taking and risk-tolerance thing is, is that when we focus on ourselves, when we get nearsighted and we focus on ourselves, what ends up happening is, is we start to get uh, myopic, we start to get nearsighted, and we, and we just see our flaws. We just get stuck on past failure. We just get stuck on residual shame. We get stuck on all of the reasons that we can't because we're human, we're broken. We're so flawed, you know, when we like to pretend we're not or we try not and we surround ourselves with people who will love us to make us feel better about ourselves. But when we focus on ourselves and, and we get stuck on our flaws, what ends up happening is our confidence withers. But when we think about Jesus, we think about if this is really true, if Jesus really was fully human but also fully God, God's son in the flesh who came from heaven down to earth to, to bridge a gap between broken humanity and perfect heavenly father. If our confidence is in him who did miracles, who raised the dead, who healed the lame, who brought sight to the lost with his supernatural ability, if our confidence is in him and not ourselves, then our confidence starts to soar because we start to realize that we're a branch. I love that metaphor. I love the simplicity of it. Where does a branch get its life? 
Where does a branch get its nourishment? Where does a branch get its strength? How does a branch get the life to produce fruit in its life? Not from itself. It has to be connected to a living root. And the living root is Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, where does our confidence come from? I, I tend to think that the, the game of building up our own confidence, it's, it's just a trap. It's a trap I have lived of trying to feel better about myself, the whole self-esteem thing, you know, like, well, I'm really good at this, I'm really good at that, but then I fail again. And so, so I'm forcing my emotions up to try and soar, but then, but then I'm broken, I'm a human, I fail, and then I crash. And then I try and build it up again. And then I crash and fall because I sin. I'm broken. I miss the mark that God has, the vision he has for my life. But when I start putting my confidence in Jesus, I start believing he really was who he said he was, and I start to believe he has an investment in my life and the fruit that my life produces as his branch. I start to not fear what's going to happen to me. Because ultimately, the outcome for my future is more in his hands than it is in my hands. Another question I think we need to ask ourselves um, to help us understand if we are going to take the kinds of risks that bring us into fully abundant, flourishing life is, do you live for your purposes or do you live for God's purposes? Because to take risks that release flourishing, abundant life we need to take risks for the sake of Jesus and his success and his kingdom, not just for our success, for our kingdom and for our purposes. You see, some of you in here today are struggling to connect with this topic because you are very risk tolerant. You don't think you have a risk-taking problem, but you do, you're wrong. You're a lot like Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples who was higher on a risk tolerance scale and spoke his mind a lot, but got rebuked directly face-to-face from Jesus. And I want to read this. This is, comes from Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus and Peter have an interaction. And I want to read this interaction that they have. And I wonder, is it possible that you might be Peter in what I read right now? Think about it. Might you be Peter right now? Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. See, at this point in Jesus' life, there's a very big shift that's going to start to happen. See, Jesus goes around. He's calling people to follow him. He's calling people out. He's calling fishermen. He's calling tax collectors. He's spending time with people of ill repute and sinners. He's healing people. And so the people that are collecting around Jesus, what they think that's going on is, is they have been promised a savior in this world. They were a people who were oppressed. They were a people who were downtrodden. They were people who felt very broken. And so they were looking for someone to come into their world 
their religious leaders had, had prophesied, had said, someone is coming who will make everything okay, and we're going to trust in him. And so Jesus of Nazarene, this local yokel who was a carpenter's son, says, I'm the son of God, and starts to back it up. He starts doing things that only a son of God could do. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Again, he heals blind people. He rebukes religious leaders who are trying to use people. And so the people closest to Jesus felt like they were on an upward trajectory of success, right? They start to get that feeling of things are really starting to work out. My life's going pretty good. I just was a fisherman, you know? Now I'm next to this, you know, son of God, CEO guy, you know, he's got all this authority, you know, like I'm on the up and up. We're going to be able to take over. You know, we're going to be the ones that are going to be in power. You know, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then Jesus starts to say, and so here's the next, here's the next part in the plan, guys. You know, it's like, huddle up. Here's what's going to happen next. I'm going to be captured. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be brutalized. I'm going to die. Do you think that was in their plans for a successful future? Do you think that made them feel good about the dream of the life they were going towards? And it's in that moment then that, that, that Jesus is really explaining that, you know, his vision for success, his vision of a kingdom life is very different than our human vision of a kingdom life and a successful life. He pulls Peter, or Peter pulls him aside and says, no. And Jesus says to Peter face to face, he says, get behind me, Satan. Ugh. What would that feel like? If Jesus, if you were close to Jesus, I mean, the real Jesus, and he looked you in the eyes and said, get behind me, devil. Ugh. That makes my, that sucks. Well, that's what he said to Peter. Hmm. You see, the word Satan, it, it, it's kind of a um, judicial term. It means accuser. It means adversary. And so what Peter didn't realize was that he, as close as he was to Jesus, he was still living in an adversarial relationship with God. And so for some of you risk takers out there, that's where you're at. You're taking risks, and you feel good about it. You feel pretty proud of yourself. But you're taking risks for yourself, not Jesus, and you're living in an adversarial relationship with your Father. And so when we think about taking risks, that's actually going to bring flourishing, abundant spiritual life, not just a better life. Let's go back to that first just real quick. We're not looking for just a better life. We're looking for a supernatural spiritual life. We have to ask ourselves, if I were to sit face to face, or if Jesus were to pull me aside and look into my eyes, what would Jesus say? Well done, my good and faithful servant, or get behind me, Satan. We have to do the searching to think about, am I living for my success and my purpose and my kingdom and my risk-taking, or am I living for Jesus? I think the last question we can ask ourselves um, when it comes to, to 
a, a life of, of taking risks that's going to lead to abundant, flourishing life is, is do you dream with clarity? Do you dream, do your dreams, do, do what you long for, do you have clarity? Do you really know what you really want? Because a broken reality is hurting you right now. Perhaps you are numbing it out. Perhaps you're pretending that it doesn't exist, but there is something broken in your life like a bone. Maybe it's a relationship with a family member. Maybe it's your own self-image and how you think about yourself and how you feel about yourself. Maybe it's your finances. <laughs> They're just a mess. <laughs> and, and you just keep working, hoping that you're going to get out of debt and pay it off. And So you're logging more hours and you're burnt out, but you don't know what else to do. And so you just, it's like, whatever. See, in your life is a broken reality that absolutely needs redemption. And, and I just wonder, though, have you let the pain push you to a clearer dream that you long for? This weekend, we celebrate the civil rights movement, and we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King. And I want to take us back to a clip of his I Have a Dream speech, because I think there's some things that we can learn from it. So when you're ready, would you go ahead and play that clip for me? I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners Will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. And every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together.
good. Do you have a dream? Does your dream come with, with the kind of breathtaking clarity that Dr. Martin Luther King's dream had? That's what I think makes that so iconic, is the razor-sharp clarity. He knew what he dreamed of. See, uh, as I was researching this, he wasn't going to even talk about his dream. Like, those words weren't even in the original draft, the manuscript. He had worked all night into the hours of the morning on this march on Washington, and he was preparing this, and, 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 and the actual manuscript didn't even have the I have a dream speech, speech in it. And so he's going into it, he's going into it, he's going into it. And then a woman from the crowd just shouts, she just stands up and yells, tell him about the dream. Mm. And he put, it, he put away his remarks and he spoke the language of dreams. He knew that if we want to motivate ourselves and people to flourishing, abundant life, we need to speak the language of dreams, of future redeemed realities. And we need to let the pain of our broken reality push us long enough and hard enough that we wouldn't avoid the pain of our current broken reality. That we would allow that pain to push us to, to razor-sharp clarity in the kind of future that we want. Dr. Martin Luther King, King Jr., he didn't kind of have a general idea of what he was after. He had a great clarity that came from great pain that he was willing to sit through. I just want to read some of this clarity right now, and I just want you to listen to these words. You need to close your eyes, close your eyes, but listen to the razor-sharp clarity with which he dreamed. He said, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. I have a dream that one day little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Hmm. What is the specific pain that, that your broken reality points to that can push you to dream of a clear future vision of what life could look like if the mountains were to be made low, if the valleys in your life were to be filled up, if the crooked places in your life were to be made straight. What does that look like specifically to you? Your soul is thirsty for redemption. Your soul thirsts for your brokenness to be made whole. 
You thirst not just for a better life, but a spiritual life to be connected to the living root of Jesus Christ. I just want to read that scripture just real quickly here as we kind of wrap up that, that Martin Luther King used. It's Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. And it's a vision. It's a dream of a future to a broken and hurting people. Isaiah 40, verse 1, starts off with, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all of her sins. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and the hills, straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. What are the valleys in your life that need to be filled in? What are the mountains that need to be brought low? What if you wrote out this week with great clarity the dream that you long for? What if you took the time to sit in your pain, take a piece of paper and a pen, and write out a dream of yours with stunning clarity that this is what you long for, this is what your pain is pointing to, this is what is crooked that needs to be made straight, this is what is low that needs to be brought up, this is the obstacle or the mountain in my way that needs to be brought down. And what if you shared that dream with one other person this week? Because if that dream doesn't come out of yourself, it'll never come into reality. And you need to take a risk of sharing your dreams with each other. You need to take a risk of sharing your dreams with Jesus. To write that out, to do the work of knowing what you actually dream for, to sit face to face with Jesus, sit face to face with one other person, and ask, you know what? what, what would you say to me about this dream, Jesus? Does it align with your vision or does it not? As you read that dream out loud, ask Jesus. Are you gonna tell me, well done, good and faithful servant? Are you gonna say, get behind me, Satan? Who's this dream for? Is it for me or is it for you? And as you pursue that dream and take that risk to remember that the outcome is in supernatural hands, more than it is in your hands. You are trusting in Jesus. You are a branch reaching out, taking a risk, doing your job, acting, trying to be as fruitful as you possibly can in your life. And it's Jesus who is the vine, the living root that is giving you your life. And your confidence is not in him, or not in yourself, but in him. Here's what I know, Jesus is with you. You may not feel it, you may not see him, you may not be aware of it, but he made a promise. He made a promise to his followers so, so, so many years ago to be with them always to the very end of the age. And I promise you, he is with you now. Would you all pray with me, please? Father, we long for, one, endurance, maybe a willingness to, to pick off the scab of past regret. <laughs> that we've let fester to allow uh, a freshness, a clean slate to be brought to us 
through honest conversations with your son, Jesus, who is alive, who is real, who got back up from the dead, and who has not abandoned us, who has said you will not be orphans in this world. Give us the courage to believe in supernatural, miraculous outcomes. Give us the courage to believe that anything is possible through your son. Give us the courage to stand face to face with you, to look you in the eye and invite you to speak back to us, either well done or get behind me. Give us the courage to want a spiritual life, not just a better life, not just better outcomes for our own selfish desires, but a redeemed future, like what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. dreamed for. And I just pray for the gift of clarity. Allow us to be willing to sit in the pain long enough to get a clear vision that we are willing to fight for. Make us willing not just to risk something, but everything to be with you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.